Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. One of several scriptures to round out our study of little bit about vocation today, our calling in a different sense. It's Genesis 2, 1 through 3 and 17, and 1 Corinthians 7, 17, and this is God's word. Genesis 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 1 Corinthians 7. Paul admonishes, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This is God's word. Please be seated. A call to work. A call to work can mean a lot of different things. It can mean anything from, oh, I'm late and I'm going to get the call to work, to the holy call to the work that we do in the church, in Christ. Um, But we're going to shoot kind of in the middle of that today. Thus the heavens were finished and God rested. The Lord took God and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to keep it. We want to talk about the chief end of man. If I say, what is the chief end of man? What's your response? Is to enjoy Him forever. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the uh, chief end, the chief end of man. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that's the children's catechism, by the way. The chief end. When we talk about an end, that word's a little bit awkward for us to use in the sense of what's called teleology or teleology. 
comes from the Greek word telos, which means goal or purpose. Purpose or explanation uh, for that which exists or finality. That final thing that you're meant for or an explanation for that. Something that fits that function or goal. What is the chief end of man? That purpose. What is the chief purpose of man? We'd be more comfortable with. In 19, or I'm sorry, in 1646, the Westminster, England group of parliamentarians who were called by the king into committee were predominantly Presbyterians, theologians, and clergymen who were to write a set of documents containing a confession and catechisms to teach both children and adults. So you would guess the adult catechism has something very similar, which it does. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. These are the words of the Westminster larger or adult catechism. Just reminding us how, uh, if you can imagine being a child in that time. Most sermons on vocation are really about one of a few things. Usually Sabbath keeping or spiritual gifts or submission or something along those lines. And those things are are important and they're necessary, but we're not going to talk about those things too much today. We're going to talk about actual vocation. So what is vocation? Vocation. Look at that word. What does that mean exactly? Sounds a lot like other words, doesn't it? That we're familiar with, like vocalization. Vacation. Hmm? Vacation. 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 Vocation comes, actually, our our word for vocation comes from uh, uh, Middle English or Old French, uh, from ultimately the Latin, which is vocatio, or vocatio is, is uh, on the A and the O, both uh, represented there. Uh, and it, they are all related. As vocalization... And vocation both have that part of the word that means the voice or to call out or to call back or to call inward. And it literally means a job or a vocation or an occupation or labor or to work. So as God worked in creation, as we just read in Genesis, and gave to man the responsibility of work in the garden, um, we are given vocation by God. And you'll notice this is in chapter 2 of Genesis, not chapter 3 or following. Okay? That's really important. We're going to look at, at three different aspects of vocation that we find in Scripture and to make them a little easier to remember, 
Uh, we're going to talk about finding vocation, following vocation, and fulfilling vocation. Uh, or discovering vocation, if you will, or preparing or exercising that vocation, and then completing or expanding that vocation. Um, and we're not going to go one for one here. All of those things we're going to look at in the lives of several people in Scripture as examples. And there are literally hundreds that we could look at, but we're going to look at three. We're going to look at Joseph, uh, which hopefully we're familiar with all three of these stories. Joseph in the Old Testament. Uh, Bezalel, who is... Uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the fella, but uh, he was a craftsman, and we'll talk about him if you haven't been familiar with him up to this point. Um, and then Paul, the apostle. So three fairly familiar names in Scripture. Like I said, there are many others. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about a, about the idea of work, vocation, and the fall as well, and what it means in the context of creation and fall to have a vocation or a calling from God. Um, and not just a uh, understanding of a calling in the sense of being called salvifically in Christ, but being called to uh, that purpose of which the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms, as well as the Confession, talk about, and that we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That that is the chief goal or chief purpose of human beings, both before and after the fall. Together with Martin Luther... John Calvin shared a high view of what that means to receive and fulfill one's vocation in life or one's calling in life. This is a, an example of what he wrote on the topic. The Lord commands every one of us in all actions of life to record, record his vocation to prevent universal confusion being produced by our folly and timidity he has appointed to all their particular duties in different spheres of life, and that no one might rashly transgress the limits prescribed, he has styled such spheres of life vocations or callings. Now that sounds very restrictive, right? It's actually the opposite of that. Interestingly enough, according to Calvin, every one of us are assigned vocations by a sovereign God. These vocations are to be taken seriously and represent specific responsibilities in different areas of our lives. He viewed them as so important as to liken a person's vocation as a post assigned by the Lord for the course of his life, as a guard standing in the guard tower. For a person not to discharge the duties of his or her post in a responsible manner, manner was to be unfaithful to the calling that God put upon his or her life. Further, to receive these callings from God is actually a blessing from God to direct us and to grant us that purpose, that 
teleology or teleology that gives us uh, that goal. And do you notice how this whole idea of goal and purpose aligns with the idea, when we think of John Calvin, what's the first doctrine we think about? Predestination, Predestination, right? Although, strangely enough, he wrote very little on predestination, but we think of Calvin in the context of the doctrine of predestination. And really, that was the transformative doctrine when it comes to vocation of both Martin Luther and John Calvin and many of the other magisterial reformers. And before we start looking at um, the personages in Scripture, I want to look a little bit at a history of this idea of vocation and what it meant to people uh, in the world in general and primarily to the church throughout the ages. Um, this one quote by Alistair Stone uh, I like. It says, Opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So, we're familiar with who John Calvin was. He was a French reformer in culture of culture and religion. Protestants look back at him and note that the impact of his mind was primarily in the doctrines of predestination and the gospel and in the Protestant Reformation of that gospel. He was one whom God used as a catalyst um, to assimilate and, multi- and man- uh, manipulate the works of the past to change the future. Think about that. To manipulate the past the works of the past and to change the future. What, what does that mean? That he was responsible for the interpretation of the scripture rightly according to providence that he was given this task as his vocation, if you will, and the influence that his doctrines had and his explanation of Scripture had not only on the religious life of the church, but on the common and day-to-day life of the church in in the understanding of work and vocation. And in so brought a freedom to vocation that had not been known or enjoyed uh, for millennia. Work is the first thing God reveals about himself in Scripture. He is a working God. He is a creating God. We just, we just read that. In fact, the first words in Scripture, in the beginning, God created, right? God's working. Confirming this idea, on the seventh day, then, God rested from his work. The penultimate of God's creation, mankind, is now given that work to continue and the responsibility of that continuing, if you will, that manipulation of what he has been given to impact the future. In the beginning, work was pleasant and even enjoyable. In fact, we would almost say work wasn't work. right? In their tending of the garden, they didn't even have to water anything, according to Scripture, right? 
it had this mist coming up from the ground. But then Eve, no, that's not very good. Anyway, in in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see this fall uh, by man's disobedience to the word of God and to the law of God. And some have incorrectly applied the curse that is found as cursing work, not the ground. If, If we look closely, then... To Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So it was not work that was cursed, but the ground that was cursed. Yet, we, for millennia, have looked upon the curse as being work as the curse and not work as being something that was affected by the curse. It seems like work uh, has remained an uphill battle for mankind since the curse. It continued to be necessary for everything from Poverty, preventing poverty and hunger and uh, theft and all aspects of work are involved in the work that is done. Solomon gave uh, numerous encouragements to avoid sloth, uh, to reinforce our understanding of, in in the Proverbs, there's much said of work and, and how we are to be industrious. And the negative of that is laziness uh, the Greeks had an interesting concept to them work was the curse and was intended only for the lowest class of people slaves primarily I mean that was your ultimate goal or your telos was to have somebody else do your work Anybody ever had that? It was the free man who engaged in art, philosophy, politics, large agriculture, endeavors of war, or whatever. In classical Greek, the word was the word for work as well as for the god of sorrow. (laughs) Same word, classical Greek. Aristotle thought to be out of work or unemployed was the best fortune you could have. It freed you up for better things. Does any of this sound familiar? He also believed that money was unproductive in society. There was a a belief that a person's prudence, morality, and wisdom was directly proportional to the amount of leisure time that a person had. A person who worked when there was no need to do so, so would run the risk of obliterating the distinction between slave and master. Okay, so you get this idea, the, the Greek idea, less work the better and have somebody else do it. Ancient Rome uh, built itself uh, on exactly the same thing. They liked the idea that the Greeks had, less work the better. And they took it to a new extreme. In Rome, land was the king and the 
craftsmen and small farmers were the source of workers and overseers of, of building projects and that kind of thing, uh, which is that whole concept of, of in England, like we have the landed gentry, that comes directly from Rome. Um, it was noted that the aristocracy um, should not be wage earners in any form. That you have slaves to do that. Pagan Rome was for the elite. The masses were excluded and work was still a curse. And that that went up through Augustine. We come to Augustine and Calvin was influenced by Augustine, but not that particular doctrine. Because Augustine, he struggled with that. He did little to change that perception. Augustine was of the persuasion that the monastics and the clergy would labor, but only as much as they needed to to not overtly sin and to be punished if they did. So work became part of uh, punishment for uh, error in, in Augustine's mind. He continued to struggle with pagan philosophy. In fact, he struggled with Neoplatonism quite heavily and it took a long time for him to see the implications of faith in the grace of God when it came to work. He, he did, ultimately. Monastic life, martyrdom, and the priesthood were things that he had uh, considered up here, and any other kind of tasks were lower, sinful, basically, and otherworldly. Okay? Now... It, that's sad because I like Augustine mostly, uh, but he did uh, in, toward the end of his life begin to change his views on that. It was during this time of Augustine's life that the church really gained in power. Constantine and um, the quote Holy Roman Empire was was established. But this idea of work or vocation being the curse was still prevalent. And it continued, even through Aquinas. Aquinas modified those views a little bit, but not much. If you were wholly vocated in some method of working within the church, a monastic order, uh, they even had divisions of lower monks and greater monks, and guess what, what, what was the dividing idea? Work. More work, the lower. Less work, the higher. More scholarly, the higher. And more manual, the lower. Okay? So, this continued throughout history until the time of the Protestant Reformation. And both Luther and Calvin, looking at Scripture, saw the idea of the priesthood of all believers and the predestinating grace of God not only being the model and the understanding for vocation and the calling for one's profession or work, but in the context of the grace of God, that that salvific, 
predestination and the calling to work uh, had an alignment with the law of God. And because, Calvin said, God is a working or creating God, we best not denigrate the act of work uh, because he actually noticed that work was not cursed, but the ground was cursed. So Calvin's vocational idea with there would be no employment so low or so sordid provided we follow our vocation as not to appear truly respectable and be deemed highly important in the sight of God. And so during this period of time that Calvin is preaching in Geneva and Luther at that point was older and would ultimately die, um, Calvin remarked that we are like a useless block of wood if we feel called to laziness as that is not what God intended. Contrary, Calvin believed that with Paul, he said, applied to work, whatever does not is not done out of faith is sin. And that continued through after the Protestant Reformation uh, and, and people like we're familiar with, the Puritans or the Pilgrim Puritans who came to the United States, uh, sometimes we will hear it called the Puritan work ethic. It's actually the Calvinist work ethic that came from uh, Calvin's Geneva and that interpretation of Scripture. Now, this is interesting. Although Calvin wasn't real popular in his day, his vocational views can be seen impacting the cultures in Holland and in Scotland and even in America, it's been an influential even today. Um, according to Maywood, employers, and this is just last year, according to Maywood, employers' rank, ranking of the attributes most desired in employees consistently confirm that the most desirable employee is one who demonstrates the traditional values characteristic valued characteristics of reliability, dependability, pride of craftsmanship, and willingness to learn, and who derives personal gratification from a job well done. Sounds very Puritan, right? (laughs) So, Calvin uh, traded this idea of the, the evil of work that the Greeks and the Romans and the early church really propagated to the victory of work and the calling of vocation. And in looking at that, we want to take a look at at Joseph here. Uh, We're familiar with his, uh, Joseph's unusual history and his calling, if you will, Um, this calling from God is actually a blessing from God and, and is granted to give purpose. Yet sometimes, as in Joseph's case, that's not apparent to begin with. In, jo- in, in Genesis 41, 37 through 46, uh, we kind of see the culmination of, of Joseph's life here in his assignment by Pharaoh. Now you remember... 
how this all transpired. That his brothers had sold him into slavery. He was accused of a crime. He was thrown in jail. He interpreted dreams for the prisoners. Some of them had worked for the Pharaoh. They come out, tell the Pharaoh, Joseph interprets dreams. That's how he gets to his uh, this position that we're, we're coming up to in 40, chapter 41. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants that, that Joseph would uh, be over uh, the, this particular second in command in, in Egypt. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God, there is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning as wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. The Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments and fine linen, put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphenath paneah and he gave him in marriage Anath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So from being sold into slavery, interpreting dreams in prison, he is now second in command and arguably the greatest nation of the time. Uh, in the known world. So we're not sure who the Pharaoh was that Joseph was under as there were about eight Pharaohs that traded around there for a little while during the early part of what's called the Middle Kingdom. Most scholars think that Joseph lived between 2000 and 1600 BCE sometime or BC, however you want that. So somewhere around 1650, and this is the interesting part because this is the purpose ultimately for which Joseph's vocation and his calling out were for. Most scholars uh, think sometime around 1650 in the Aegean Sea, that's that little part of the Mediterranean that shoots up between Turkey and Greece, the volcanic island of Santorini, then known as Thyra, and also probably Atlantis. Part of the advanced Minoan Empire exploded in one of the largest eruptions ever recorded, and it caused a tidal wave that destroyed most of the food production in the Mediterranean for almost a decade. This is likely the famine that Joseph predicted interpreting Pharaoh's dream. And so it essentially wiped out all of the crops in the Mediterranean for at least seven years, and it, shortly after that, they be, begin to rebuild. But 
at the end of this, as Joseph's brothers now, years later, come back in Genesis 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. You sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. So we know what Joseph's purpose or his calling was. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Therefore I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Okay, same idea here. God used Joseph in his calling. Do you imagine that Joseph just simply had this grace to interpret dreams uh, and that's all he had? He's like, well, Pharaoh, I can tell you what's going to happen, but pretty much else I'm pretty useless. I can't really do anything else. Now you think that God provided Joseph with the talents and the abilities to govern and administrate uh, that would have been required for that position long before he ever got there. So we see the acquisition, maybe it was through simple talent that God gifted him with in his life. Maybe it was through education. Maybe it was through uh, the work that he did with his father before that point in time. We don't know. But we know he was obviously very talented at it. So it's not necessarily that he was simply given by God some miraculous ability, although we know he was given that in a particular area. But there were other things that went along with that. And when we look at all of these people, it's not simply a matter of of divine grace that is given to them in a miraculous sense, but it's also the common grace of the things that they were either born with or acquired uh, from preparation uh, during their lifetime um, that they came to the places that they were. Uh, Bezalel, this guy in Exodus 31, who some of you have heard of and some of you haven't, um, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for settings and in carving wood to work in every craft. And... Behold, I have appointed with him Oliab, the son of Ashimach, of the tribe of Dan, 
And I have given to all able men ability that they may all that I have do all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent. So they're building the tabernacle here. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of talent and craftsmanship that was required. This was the profession of these men, and they were overseen by Bezalel, who is a guy we hear of here and in one other place, and the only other time we hear that name is in genealogies, and he pretty much passes out of view. He was an ordinary craftsman who had been extraordinarily gifted for a particular purpose at a particular time in an ordinary way. And it's interesting that his name, uh, it says, and I have called him by name, um, his name is is Mo, uh, that Moses had, um, Calvin says that this is like Cyrus, that he, he has named him ahead of time, uh, though not prophetically to, to anyone, but God entrusted him with this task many years before that. And we are, even if it's ordinary work, we are entrusted with a purpose ahead of time that God has planned for us in preparation and in execution and ultimately in fulfillment and passing things on to future generations. We see that in this ordinary Israelite who was extraordinarily called by God. And ultimately then, uh, our third example in this is, is Paul. And we're very familiar with Paul's story. But if you think back on Paul's story, he wasn't simply this great apostle that that pops up on the scene out of nowhere, you know, kind of drops out of the sky or climbs out of a cave or whatever and says, hello, I'm Paul the Apostle and I'm here to do my thing, right? Now, we, we understand Paul was, was prepared vocationally ahead. And we see this little hint of this when we look at Paul in the book of Acts, in Acts 7:58, it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And this is at the stoning of Stephen. And, and the witness laid their, hands, their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this young man named Saul, we see him named here. But before that, we actually have extra biblical records of him. We, we see then later in Acts 9, his calling and conversion uh, salvifically and calling as an apostle but we see that he is uh, a Pharisee so he's been on the scene for we are the in Philippians 3 3 through 6 he says if you have confidence in the flesh I have more um, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So we know he's a Pharisee, so he comes from, 
But not is he just a Pharisee. This guy studied under Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the great-grandson of Hillel. And Hillel was the, the big deal Pharisee. He's called Hillel the Great. Not Hallel, Hillel. Uh, Hillel was, during the intertestamental period, him and a guy named Shimonai were kind of in contest in the way they interpreted the law. But that line, Hillel's line, um, was very, in a sense, pedestrian. They were as well educated in the Hellenism of the time or the Greek philosophy of the time as they were uh, in the law, the Ten Commandments, the Torah, all of the, the things of, of the Hebrew people. And they had, had a tendency to take a broader view uh, and understand what was going on around them more. There were other details that we won't go into, but they, he had, uh, Gamaliel had taken Paul as his prize student, if you will, and trained him as a Pharisee personally. And so Paul has all this background in philosophy. We see that in Acts 17. He has, he has background in, in the Gentile world. We understand from Acts 22 that he is a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen in Palestine in the first century who is a Pharisee. That is preparation for the apostle to the Gentiles. So, he says, I, I was born in Tarsus in Sicilia, Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. And then we see Paul write a large portion of the New Testament. And where did he end up? As Pope of Rome. No. <laughs> well, sort of. He ended up with his head chopped off in by Nero in Rome somewhere around 66 to 68 AD, somewhere in that area. Uh, Paul fulfilled his vocation that he had been prepared all of his life for, yet can you imagine that Paul would have thought when he was a student under Gamaliel, I'm going to end up with my head on the chopping block under Caesar in Rome because of preaching a gospel that I fight against now. Now, I, we, we need to think carefully about the predestinating work of God in our vocation. Bethany Jenkins, uh, who is a, she's an attorney, she's a, a, on staff at Redeemer Press in um, New York. Uh, that's where, um, what's his name? Timothy Keller uh, is uh, the pastor. She says, our present life, therefore, will be best regulated if we always keep our calling in mind. No one will be tempted by his own boldness to dare to undertake what is not compatible with his calling because he will know 
that it is a wrong to go beyond his limits. Anyone who is not in the front ranks should be content to accomplish his private tasks and should not desert the place where the Lord has put him. That means when David or when Joseph were herding sheep in the field, they were to do that the best that they could and to their, the highest ability that they were capable of that God had prepared them at that time. Whether they knew or not that ultimately they were predestined to become something else and in the world's eyes something greater. In God's providence, a tool in his hand to accomplish his will at the time. And so... To conclude, I would like to leave you with 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. And our next hymn. Take my life and let it be page 585.